Well, it is good to be able to uh, preach again, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to do so. Do you remember a few years ago when uh, the big thing was the big switch? Do you remember that? When we were being bombarded with messages on TV about uh, the change that was going to happen moving from analog to digital signals. And we were uh, told, you know, that uh, it was going to give us better sound and better picture quality. And that's true. When you can pick up a decent signal, you know, over the air that one doesn't pixelate all the time, uh, it does give us better sound and better picture. And especially the picture quality is the most notable thing that you can tell the difference in. Um, And especially if you have a high-definition flat-screen TV, uh, you probably notice very much the difference uh, between digital and analog. Now, I don't know all the, all the technical reasons why that works that way, um, but I do know this, that high definition accentuates the contrast between the objects on the screen. And the sharper the contrast, the clearer the picture. Have you ever considered what makes a church stand out? What makes for a high-definition church, so to speak? Some churches are known for the, uh, the grandness of their architecture. Remember a few years ago? Well, it's been more than a few years ago. It's really been a long time ago, like 1992. That was a long time. <laughs> I was able to uh, go to the Shepherds Conference uh, at Grace Community Church out in Los Angeles, and we had some free time one day, and so the guys that I was with, we took a little trip around the city, and uh, we made our way down to uh, Garden Grove, California, to see the Crystal Cathedral. Now, not exactly a a place of of great uh, theological significance, but it is an architectural wonder to see that uh, massive glass building there. About 10 years later, I was able to uh, make a trip to Boston, Massachusetts. And there in downtown Boston, Massachusetts is a church that has grand architecture in a whole different way. Trinity Church in downtown Boston is an old kind of gothic sort of cathedral in downtown Boston with these huge uh, stained glass windows. Both of those churches are well known for their uh, unique and striking architecture, and there are all kinds of churches that are known for that. Some churches are known because of the music that is central to their services, whether it be uh, classical or traditional or contemporary. It is the thing that kind of gives them a name within the community. In other places, uh, it is the preacher who is the focal point. You may not be able to know what the exact name of that church is, but you You know the preacher, you know, it's John MacArthur's church, or it's John Piper's church, or it's Chuck Swindoll's church. Uh, The preacher is the the focal point, and uh, his reputation is the thing that causes the church to stand out. For other congregations, it's a particular ministry that draws attention within the community. Perhaps it's outreach to the needy, a strong missions program a vibrant youth or children's ministry. Now, 
in and of themselves. There's nothing necessarily wrong with any of those things that I've just mentioned. But those things ought to be secondary at best if a church is to really stand out. The real contrast that should be on display in the music, in the pulpit, in the ministries, and in everything else that goes on in the life of a church, the contrast that should mark that church is the contrast spiritually between the work of God and the ways of the world. And the sharper the contrast, the clearer the picture That was the kind of contrast that the Apostle Paul sought to display in his life and in his ministry. It was the kind of contrast that he wanted to see in the church. And it's the kind of contrast that ought to mark believers today. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians is a letter that is filled with Paul seeking to make clear the contrast of his apostleship, of his approach to ministry, and of his desire for the church there in Corinth to stand out in the community. In the world today, the church often presents a fuzzy picture of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Far too often, the church looks more like the world. Whether it is in an approach to ministry or in the moral conduct of the members of that body. Far too often the church does not stand out. God wants the church to be different. The sharper the contrast, the clearer the picture. I want you to take your Bible in hand and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to focus on uh, verses 7 through 12, but to attempt to put it in context, we want to start in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Really, would be, if we had time, we could go back and start in chapter 1 and read through, but we don't have time to do all that. So we're going to just start with verse 1 in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and read through verse 12. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. A church that stands out to the glory of God. This morning I want to talk to you about how to be that kind of church. A church that stands out to the glory of God is first of all one where the extraordinary is revealed through the ordinary. The extraordinary is revealed through the ordinary. Verse 7, Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Jars of clay, not the band. But Paul is making a, a comparison here. He's talking about himself, and he's talking about every believer. We are just ordinary vessels. There's nothing special about any of us. When Paul talks about jars of clay, everybody would immediately be, be able to identify what it is that he's talking about. Just clay pots made of common, ordinary material used for common, ordinary purposes. Things that existed in common, ordinary households. And things that ultimately would be expendable. Think about all the plastic containers you've got in your house. All the little butter tubs, all the little plastic containers that you've accumulated from stuff that you've bought over the years, thinking, you know, we'll have a use for this sometime. And you've got a million of them in your cabinets. And most of them you never use. And when you do use them, you heat them in the microwave and they melt. Or you use them to hold paint when you have a painting project at home. And when it's all said and done, what do you do with those little plastic tubs? You throw them away. Well, the clay pots of, Paul day, of Paul's day would be like the plastic tubs of our own day. Common, ordinary, ultimately expendable items. Paul says, we are jars of clay. And when Paul says that, he is referring first and foremost to himself. You remember, Paul's name originally was Saul. And you remember Saul of the Old Testament? 
Remember the description of Saul of the Old Testament, what he was like physically? He stood head and shoulders taller than anybody else. He had a magnificent appearance. Well, not so for Saul or Paul of the New Testament. Physically, he was a man who was unimposing. It suggested that Paul was a man who was small in stature, with a hunchback, and an eye deformity that probably made him uncomfortable to look at. Physically, there was nothing about Paul that would commend him to others. And even publicly, when he was out doing the ministry, people considered him to be unimpressive. Over in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, in verse 10, Paul's critics said this of him. They say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. In his ministry, Paul wasn't a great orator. He didn't have a booming voice like the evangelist George Whitfield of centuries ago, of whom it was said that when he spoke in an open-air meeting, that tens of thousands could hear him speak. Not so, Paul. No big uh, presence physically or vocally. John MacArthur summarizes the attitude of the Corinthians, at least some of them, toward Paul. And they said, he's not an imposing person. He lacks charm. He lacks persona. He lacks good looks. He just doesn't have the personal presence and the personal power to motivate people. And Paul himself would say that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent of the gospel, the foremost of sinners, as we read earlier. In other words, Paul would say, everything you say about me is true. There is nothing great about who I am. And yet, we have this treasure in jars of clay. What is this treasure? Paul says in verse 4, he said, It is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It is the ministry of the gospel which God has entrusted, Paul says, not only to me, but to every believer. We have this treasure in jars of clay. This treasure of knowing that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. That Christ loved me and he gave himself up for me. The righteous for the unrighteous. He has saved me. And having saved me, I now call him Lord. Paul says we don't preach ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for his sake. This is the treasure that is in us as God's people. Jars of clay 
In the first century, jars were used to house all kinds of things, not just common household items, but even the wealthy would often use jars in which to put uh, valuable coins and jewels and valuable wine. Important documents would be stored in common clay jars. And Paul draws a parallel here to us as believers. We are just jars of clay. And though we are nothing special, God has chosen to place a treasure within us. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Caleb earlier read verse 15. But I want to read some of the verses that surround that as well. 1 Timothy Chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you you sense Paul's awe at the grace of God? And do you have that same sense of awe for the grace of God in your own life? That though you are the foremost of sinners, God has shown you grace. That you might be a means for him to display the incredible treasure of the gospel. Both in the redeemed life that you live and in the gospel that you proclaim to others. Paul was amazed that God would call him into the ministry, would give him the privilege of not only displaying the gospel, but sharing it with others. A church that stands out to the glory of God is one where the extraordinary treasure of the gospel is revealed in the lives of ordinary believers day by day. As you go to work, as you live at home, as you're out in the community, as you do things that seem to be of no great significance, God works through ordinary people to display the extraordinary treasure of his grace 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When God's people embrace that he works through ordinary men and women, that church will be a church that stands out to the glory of God. We have this treasure in jars of clay. A church that stands out to the glory of God is also one where, as a consequence of the first, that God's power is revealed through our weakness. Power is revealed through weakness. Look again there in verse 7, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Why does God reveal the extraordinary through the ordinary? So that we have nothing to boast about, but that our boasting might be in Jesus Christ and in the grace of God the Father and in the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. God reveals his power most often and most clearly through that which is weak. That's a theme that Paul repeats over and over and over again throughout this second epistle to the Corinthians. And towards the end, he looks to the primary example, the primary illustration of how God reveals his power in weakness. As Paul looks at the person of Jesus Christ, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, the first part of the verse, speaking of Jesus, he says, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. Christ himself was crucified in weakness. He who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on human form, became a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul said that death on the cross was a death that revealed weakness in one sense. As people looked upon the one who hung there, they said, he saved others, why can't he save himself? He was crucified in weakness, a weakness that he willingly gave himself to, so that By his blood we might be saved and that God's power would be revealed in that weakness of death on the cross through the power of the resurrection that followed. Paul himself understood what it meant for God's power to be revealed in weakness. It was true in his own life. If you look back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about an amazing experience that he had had in his own life and that the temptation out of that amazing experience was to become conceited about his uh, spiritual blessings. And in that, Paul says, God in his wisdom sent to him a thorn in the flesh so that he would not become conceited. 
And in verse 8 of chapter 12, Paul says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He didn't like it. He didn't want it. But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect. How? In weakness. And so Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, in my weakness... God's power is able to be made evident so that he gets the glory, he gets the praise. It shows that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul revealed that over and over again in his life and ministry and he brought that home to the Corinthians back in chapter four when Paul lists his accomplishments for the sake of the gospel, his curriculum vitae, so to speak. I wasn't really sure what a curriculum vitae was until our daughter applied to, uh, for a teaching position uh, at a university back in Oklahoma, and uh, she had to make out a curriculum vitae, a list of her accomplishments, things that she had done and achieved. Paul gives a list of his accomplishments his curriculum vitae, so to speak, in verses 8 through 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul says, here are my accomplishments in the Lord. I am afflicted. The word that he uses there is a word that relates to being squeezed tightly. And Paul says, sometimes I feel like the very, my very life is being squeezed out of me. It was something that he alluded to early on in the letter when he said that there was a time in our ministry in Asia where we felt as if we were under such pressure, we were under the sentence of death. And Paul says, though I am afflicted, though I feel as if sometimes my very life is being squeezed from me, God has always made a way of escape. He has always brought me through it. Paul says also there are times when I, I look at the situation, I look where I'm at, I look at where I think God is leading and I just don't understand it, I don't get it, I am perplexed, I am at a loss to understand it and to know where this will all end up. And yet even in those moments when I am most perplexed, I have never been driven off the deep end. God has always Sustain me. I have not gotten to the place of utter despair. 
Paul understood persecution. He says, I am persecuted, pursued from place to place. Just read the book of Acts. Read from chapter 13 through the end and find out how many different ways to how many different places Paul was pursued and persecuted. It started from the beginning of his ministry. From his earliest days there in Damascus following his conversion, there was a death threat against him and he had to leave under the the cover of darkness and be let down by ropes through an opening in the wall of the city. And that became the pattern of his life. Paul said, I am pursued by persecutors everywhere I go. And yet, I am not abandoned. God is with me. The one who has promised, I will never leave you or forsake you, is at my side. And sometimes, Paul says, I am struck down. Sometimes in being pursued, I am caught. Paul talks about there in this letter, 2 Corinthians, where he talks about all the things that have happened to him. Being stoned, being lashed, being shipwrecked, going without sleep, being pursued from place to place. And sometimes he was caught. Sometimes he was struck down. But Paul says, even in those moments when I am caught, I am not destroyed. I am always preserved by God's grace. God's power was revealed in Paul's weaknesses over and over and over again. And dear people, that is how God works in us as well. In our weakness, he reveals his power, his strength. Paul calls it the surpassing power of God. The word that Paul uses there is a word from which we get our English word dynamite. It is not just a little firecracker's worth of power. It is this massive power of God, the same power by which he raised Christ from the dead. It is that power that is at work within us who believe. That surpassing power of God reveals the life of Jesus through us, through these jars of clay that we are. You see, the power of God in a body of believers rests not on a church's property or its programs, but the power of God is revealed through weak, ordinary vessels like you and me who are filled with the treasure of the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We who trust God to use us for his glory, whatever circumstances we might face. A church that stands out to the glory of God is one in which the extraordinary is revealed through the ordinary. It is one in which God's power is revealed through our weakness. And lastly, a church that stands out to the glory of God is one where ultimately life 
is revealed through death. Look again at verses 11 and 12. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Life is revealed through death. What does Paul mean by that? What kind of death is he talking about? I think it covers a variety of things that we as followers of Christ are called to die to sin. In Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 14, there Paul says, You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, these jars of clay, to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness." For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. We are to die to sin so that the new life of Christ is to be manifested or revealed in us. It is a contradiction in terms to be a Christian and to walk in sin. It doesn't mean that we never sin. John makes that clear in 1 John. But if the pattern of our life is one of habitual sin and desiring sin and glorying in sin, you cannot be legitimately called a believer, a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ. Those who are followers of Christ die to sin. We are actively engaged in putting it to death, mortifying it within our lives, in our flesh. And as we do so, the life of Christ is revealed in us. We are to die to sin. We are to die to self. What did Paul say in another place? He said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Nancy Piercy has written a book on uh, truth, about truth, called Total Truth. And she addresses this whole thing about what it means to die to self so that the life of Christ might be revealed in us. And I appreciate what she says here. And I, if you, it's a little bit of a long quote, so try to stick with me. She says, we have... We tend to have a limited concept of spiritual death as saying no only to things we want or covet, our guilty pleasures and selfish ambitions. But in reality, it means dying inwardly to whatever has control over us. And the thing that really controls us may not be what we want. It may be what we fear. 
Fear can dominate our lives just as strongly as desire. It may be anger or pride or even futile wishes. A person disappointed in life may simply keep wishing that things had been different and may find it all but impossible to let go of those dashed hopes and ruined dreams. Whatever it is that controls you, that is what you must place on the altar to be slain. We are called as believers to die to self. We are called also to die for the sake of Jesus. Sometimes even literally. I was just reading this morning in the Voice of the Martyrs uh, newsletter that I got about what believers in Nigeria are facing. That because of Boko Haram there, that believers are being killed and facing death. And how even children are standing firm for their faith in Christ. Paul understood that. In Acts chapter 20, as Paul was making his way to Jerusalem, taking with him the contributions that had been gathered from the Corinthians and other places, as he was heading back there, and he found himself in in Ephesus on the way back, he spoke to the Ephesian elders and said this in verse 24 of Acts chapter 20, he says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And that is exactly where Paul ends as you come to his final letter in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Paul said in another place, he said, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Uh, That attitude towards life and death will stand in sharp contrast to this world whose hope is only in the things that are here. We have a greater hope. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, the anchor for our souls, who is at the Father's right hand. We are called upon to die for the sake of Jesus. And in dying for the sake of Jesus, his life is revealed in us. It is shown very plainly that our hope is not here, that our citizenship is in heaven. And we are called to die for the sake of others. 
little bit later in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as Paul kind of draws this whole argument out about life being revealed through death. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21, Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Dying for the sake of others. Bringing the gospel to those who need to hear it. Life revealed through death. Remember what I said earlier about high-definition television. The sharper the contrast, the clearer the picture. The same is true for a church. The sharper the contrast between the church and the world, the clearer the picture that the church presents to the world of what God's people are. We are to be a people where the extraordinary treasure of the gospel is revealed through the ordinary jars of clay that we are. A church that stands out as one in which God's power is revealed through our weakness. And a church that stands out as one in which life, the life of Christ, is revealed through our death. That is an impossible thing to do on our own. It is only possible by the work of the Holy Spirit through believers who are yielded to the Lord. Too often in the church we try to do things in our own power, in our own wisdom, in our own way. The late Francis Schaeffer made this statement. He said, the central problem of our age is that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, tends to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than in the power of the Spirit. To work 
to do God's work in God's way, to allow the extraordinary treasure of the gospel to be revealed in our ordinary lives, for God's power to be revealed in our weakness, for his life to be revealed through our daily dying. It does not mean then for us a life of ease, does it? Schaefer goes on to say this, both the scriptures and the history of the church teach that if the Holy Spirit is working, the whole man will be involved and there will be much cost to the Christian. The more the Holy Spirit works, the more Christians will be used in battle and the more they are used, the more there will be personal cost and tiredness. It is quite the opposite of what we might first think. People often cry out for the work of the Holy Spirit and yet forget that when the Holy Spirit works, there is always tremendous cost to the people of God in weariness and tears and battles. And yet, it is in the midst of those times in these jars of clay where God's power is made perfect in our weakness and his life is shown in our death. And in that, we stand out like stars in the dark night sky. Many of you are familiar with a book entitled The Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. And the very first prayer recorded in that book echoes what Paul has been talking about here in this passage of Scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Part of that prayer says this, Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision." When a church is filled with believers whose lives exhibit those kinds of contrasts, the contrasts of 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 12, when a church is filled with those kind of people, there you will find a church that truly stands out to the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we desire to be that kind of church, a church that stands out, not for our renown, but for your renown, not for our glory, but for your glory, not to bring attention to ourselves, but that Christ might be lifted up and exalted. Lord, when we go through suffering and hardship and persecution and even death, 
Lord, may we remain faithful, knowing that you are faithful, that you will not abandon us, you will not leave us or forsake us, but that, Lord Jesus, you have promised to be with us to the end of the age. Lord God Almighty, we desire to be a church that stands out. Use us in our ordinariness, in our weakness, in our dying, that Christ might be revealed in us. Thank you for your goodness and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.